Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts who will introduce themselves. And lately, I'm wondering when so much is tied to the bottom line and if the most significant uh, recent breaches have had really little impact on a company's stock price or impact a sale of a company, I'm wondering why does security matter? This is Forrest, and uh, I just want to actually, this is a a good one to start with actually, is, you know, there could be more long-term effects just in terms of confidence people might have in a company's commitment to security, right? So maybe a stock price doesn't tank right away or something like that, but, you know, just over time, you're eroding kind of the reputation of the brand. Hi, this is Killian, and I definitely agree with with Forrest there. Just from a a personal experience, I've had like my credit card uh, number stolen a bunch of times over the years. And I stopped doing business with a lot of the organizations that I suspect either directly or indirectly contributed to that. So while the stock price is not going to tank immediately, I think consumers are waking up and they're going to say, and just people who deal with an organization, that they're not going to conduct business with them if they don't think that their data is being protected. This is Mike, and I guess I want to kind of push back on the notion that it's not affecting a company's stock prices. It's not in all cases. Um, but in the case of, say, like Yahoo, it definitely uh, has messed up their acquisition by Verizon, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in value lost and reputation. But in general, I think if it's not affecting the stock prices, it's because security is so bad in general, just for every company, that as a competitive advantage, um, it's not something that bubbles up until it's a problem. I want to talk about um, breaches and the responsibility of of notifying your customers when it happens. Uh, Brian Krebs, he recently wrote an article calling out a company where uh, software was used by many different enterprises and they had a supply chain attack and it failed to properly notify their customers. And there was a bit of back and forth on how the company doesn't track on who downloads and tries the software and there's no master list of users to notify, but then they somehow published a statement, but it was difficult to find. In terms of a breach notification, what's the right thing to do in order for you to feel more confident about the company you're doing business with. I found that article really interesting, especially the the website or the software owner's response to it as well. I think, kind of going back to Mike's previous statement, the kind of state of security right now is not awesome. We could have just dropped the mic and ended the... uh, the podcast on on his comments, but I think that smart companies will start to make it a competitive differentiator. Everybody knows that works with technology at all, even if you're not technical. That bugs happen, problems happen. There are there are flaws and there are security incidents. It, it's something we just get used to anymore. But the organization that comes out and says, "Yeah, we had a problem. We we discovered it. We fixed it. Here's what we did." I think we'll go a long way in terms of consumer value and in deciding do I want to continue doing business with these people are they you know reputable or or not I mean we can even look at different industries you know the auto industry for example without getting too specific in the last couple of years that I've had safety or recall issues the companies that kind of came out and said yeah we had a problem we're doing what's right by our customers to fix it are are doing well the ones who have tried to sweep it under the rug have faced lots of litigation and bad public press and had to get bailouts because the consumers don't don't trust them anymore. I'm curious to how much of this is a legal tactic versus uh, an actual security tactic. Like you mentioned recalls, and it's my understanding that a lot of times 
recalls are issued for products that don't even have severe issues, but it's almost more of a legal thing that if there is an issue and they issue a recall, they're just going under the assumption that like 99% of people aren't actually going to act on it. And if there's ever a future issue, they can say like, oh, well, we're covered. We, we told you there was going to be issues with this. The change to me is with the security notification is what to do. Just to say like, oh, we had a breach. And that's what seems to have happened in this case. They said we had a breach. We, we took some action. So now it's down to splitting hairs. Like, oh, was this enough of a notification? Was it, were each of these people, you know, sufficiently warned that this happened? Could they take action? And it's, it's incredibly hard to know. I look at it in terms of harm. If, you know, you're confident there's a small number of people and you've contacted them so they can stop, can you fix whatever harm has been caused? Then I think it's sufficient. But if, if it fails that, then uh, no, I don't think it's sufficient. I mean, I think that's a great way to look at it in terms of harm, Mike. And I, and I think that that's probably the most consumer-friendly way to do it. You know, kind of go out there and say, listen, did we do right by our customers? This also kind of has an interesting parallel, and, and we've probably talked about it before, but kind of a security versus compliance type of dichotomy. Have you checked the compliance box like, yes, we notified somebody about whatever issue it is, or have you taken steps to actually improve something or make sure that, that harm was not done, or if harm was done, that the appropriate steps have been remediated? I think that's a very interesting approach and a good way to kind of judge companies by, uh, based on their actions. You talked briefly, Mike, about Yahoo's breach, and yeah, it affected their their brand somehow. But you know, Yahoo was sort of a dying company already. Originally, Verizon wanted a, a billion dollars off, and then lately they said, "Well, because not that many people left Yahoo after the breach, and that they still have active users." they're still valuable. So I guess it's fine. And so instead of a billion dollars off, like a few hundred million dollars off the deal is fine. Like that, that's kind of like if I was Yahoo, I'd be like, oof, like <laughs> yay for me. It, it just feels like people aren't paying enough for, for their security problems. You mean like the companies themselves or you mean like the users are? The companies okay. themselves. I, I wonder if this comes back to though, to kind of, you know, market, demand, or maybe that's not the right term, but, you know, kind of consumer confidence and consumer concern. You know, I mean, if if Yahoo didn't lose, you know, a ton of users over it, a lot of people didn't close their accounts, what have you, then they still have the user base. You know, that's what they're they're selling in a lot of ways. Well, if the users don't want to leave over it, then how is it in necessarily the interest of the company? Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's kind of the, the question that we're always asking. But, uh, you know, again, if the users aren't really clamoring for it, if that's not why people are choosing or not choosing a service or a product, I mean, I, I think there it is right there. Well, Killian says he would leave a company if they had a breach. Would you guys? I had um, my Gmail account broken into years ago before I had two-factor on it, and I'm still using it for personal email. $350 million seems like a lot of money to me. And, you know, that's about how much the estimate is that Yahoo lost out on in terms of this deal directly attributable to the breach. And I, I think it's really hard to say, like, what does it actually cost? Like, did people move? Is that the cost? Again, like what harm was done to the people? I, it, it's very hard to tell. Like, it's annoying because, you know, someone broke into my email account and they spammed all my friends for some stupid social network that no one's ever going to use. That's not the same as like ripping off a credit card and running up a bunch of bills that I need to pay. It's qualitatively different. It's not great in any case, but I don't know if it's also 
in that case with your email, I mean, that brings up a really interesting point is, what's the context around it? Um, You know, was Google negligent in some way, like Yahoo kind of seems to appear to be, and I I think that they're potentially facing a lot of lawsuits for kind of willful negligence. And and maybe that's the question for you. Was it somehow the fault of negligence on Google's part, or was it one of those stupid things that happens? Well, this stuff is so complex, I think it's hard to... It's hard to sort out what's negligent when you get to the point of like having hundreds of millions of users. I think it's interesting to think of it the other way because it's very easy to point fingers at these giant companies and say like, oh, you suck. You know, because that's, that's what I see online. Not like we're saying that so much. That's what I see a lot of times online. But I don't see those same people turning around and running their own email servers, not having them exploited and used to spam the rest of the Internet and all sorts of other things. Is it qualitatively different if my Gmail account gets hacked versus my own SMTP server? Like, what's worse? What's better? Like, what is the cost here? Keely and I were at RSA. I don't know if you saw this, but I noticed that people were talking about enterprise security score more so than ever before because we're always trying to put numbers on a certain thing. But even then, even if you have, like, say you have a high enterprise security score if you're not looking at the context of stuff you're you're pretty screwed in in that regard too so i want to talk about something else that's opposite of a breach where in some ways you're self-incriminating yourself i've been hearing more about people taking international flights and when you come back into the states you'll encounter border patrol and they might ask you for your social media passwords or your phone's password and the thought of that really makes me cringe because our phone is like the window to our lives i like what a TechCrunch article said that if even if I hand my phone to you when it's locked, you'd be able to learn a lot about me because of notifications, uh, the news that I'm reading, who I'm texting. And there was a NASA scientist who had a phone. It's also owned by NASA. And he came back from an international flight and Customs and Border uh, Patrol agents required him to reveal his passwords in order for him to be released, and he eventually acquiesced. Then later, the article talks about your Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights, where the U.S. border isn't technically in the U.S., so neither of those rights you have uh, at the border. And so there were three things that alarmed me. Number one, that phone of that NASA scientist contained sensitive information in it. Um, It sounds like all the security rules about access control and least privilege model goes out the window. And I also like what something Mike's been advocating um, over the past couple of shows is that uh, attack surface area. Like, Because now we have all our information synced to our Facebook, our Instagram, our Dropbox, our email, just the more people have access to it, the more vulnerable your data is. So I wanted to hear your response to these articles as well as the security implications for NASA. This article and the couple articles I read about this you know, kind of when you hear about it, just read the headline in the news. You don't think about it so much. Oh, they're going to look at you know, they're going to look at your Facebook and you know, make sure that you're not subscribed to crazy groups or something. But what really startled me more than anything else, especially in that NASA article, is that the, he unlocked the phone and they left the room. So the phone was out of his control and unsupervised. That's a world of difference to me, especially with the forensics tools out there where you can dump 
all of the contents, as you mentioned, for later review and for archiving and for sorting. It's it's just really terrifying to think that they're not just reviewing your data, you know, quickly, which is which I think is is not great either. But it's terrifying that you know all of this data, regardless, is gone out of your control, and you can't validate what they've done with it or what they're going to do with it in the future. Um, and it's just out there, and and that's the most scary part, I think, to me about it. Um, and the fact that we lose all of the constitutional protections we have because we're in that kind of gray zone, that loss of control is, is kind of what upset me about it the most. And the thing that gets me too is, you know, I think the part of this was, oh, well, you know, they're, they're not U.S. citizens in, in these cases and, and, you know, it's the border, so it's not really in the U.S. But I mean, you know, if you're taking data off of this communication device that I imagine that um, the person that we're talking about here uh, was named Sid, I, I imagine that uh, he's having conversations with U.S. citizens that are now in the hands of, uh, was it CBP, I think is the acronym. I certainly don't want to throw non-citizens under the bus who are huge assets, you know, even just the technological innovation in the U.S., but the American citizens also that are just were a part of a text conversation by SMS or Google Hangouts or something like that, you know, now their information is in there too and the things that they said. This is one of those things where anybody who has any part of whatever conversation, you know, if their information is, you know, vacuumed up, well, so is everybody who's ever been in that conversation. That's actually a, a really interesting point. So the other half of that conversation, let's let's kind of play this out one step further. How is that protected? Now, certain states in the U.S. have varying laws about um, surveillance, like consent right. to be monitored or whatever, unless there's a warrant involved. So the other person on that asymmetric conversation has their data monitored in a way or captured, wouldn't they then be covered under the uh, the rights, the constitutional rights and the rights of their states? Yeah. Th- that actually gets into a really weird legal kind of web uh, because it's asymmetric communication. And I mean, some states I know with, uh, what is it, like the wiretapping laws where it's basically mm-hmm. in some states, both parties have to be notified that it's occurring, otherwise right. you can't recur, uh, record. In some states, only one party has to know or you can't record. The question is, well, which state did this occur this original conversation did it occur in some state or is you know this airport in some state maybe the airport isn't technically u.s soil maybe the the border area of the airport you know does that also mean it's not part of that state i I wouldn't be surprised if there's some gray area there legally there's a lot of questions there yeah that's i mean that's that's entirely right i think i mean heck the court system could be jammed up for years just kind of solving the constitutionalities of all this and I'll tell you the truth too, and you know I don't necessarily know anybody personally who's in CBP, but if their primary you know job is, is you know border security and you know maybe specifically working at airports, I don't necessarily know that the person who's going to be looking at that phone is going to be trained in information security. You know when they take that data, how secure is that? You always hear I think about some places where oh you know some officer somewhere like you know had access to to some what is it, electronic evidence or something and you know they easily took a picture of it or something like that i mean what what's going on here you know what are these what are these officers seeing and and how much are they a part of information security conversation or in, information security community within cbp or are they just kind of you know frontline general well even separate from that is the notion of within a department or within an organization there's still separation of these things for security and, you know, I used to work in the Navy. It's not like anyone who's in the Navy can get to anything else in the Navy, you know, that it's still, there's still walls between so much of this for very good reasons. And 
it seems crazy that this situation, like, I, to my mind, is this a data breach? Like, is it a data breach if a doctor goes through the border and they take his phone and there's uh, healthcare information on it? Is it a, is it a data breach if uh, there's someone who's working in a sensitive area and they have a government issue phone and they go through and uh, it's just all craziness to me. As far as I'm concerned, somebody who's working at, what was it, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory might very well have information that is much more important to keep secure to members of the, or staff at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory than for CBP to be seeing it. You know, I mean, that could be American national security that the breach is occurring by letting it get to low-level law enforcement as opposed to an employee of the laboratory. Let's talk about security threats in general. There were a few stories that happened this week that I'd like to get your thoughts on. First, let's talk about the most important one that just happened with Cloudflare. Uh, A bunch of data was leaked, and Mike, you just wrote a blog post on it. Break it down for us and tell us what happened. Sure. So I, I think this starts with understanding where Cloudflare sits in the internet infrastructure. So I think a lot of people are familiar with a proxy. So that's something that like you're on a network, everyone in your office is on a network, and everyone leaves uh, through a proxy to get to the internet. And with that, maybe there's content filtering, uh, maybe there's, you know, some endpoint security, but that's how proxy works. So Cloudflare is really two things. It's um, a reverse proxy, which means that it's traffic that's coming back. So if you have a website and you're concerned about the traffic that's reaching it, Cloudflare sits in front of it and does a bunch of things for you. One of the things it does, it's a content delivery network so that if you're in New York versus in California or Tokyo, um, it will serve traffic to you from somewhere geographically closer. Um, And it also does a bunch of things uh, to make it more safe. It protects from DDoSs and it does a lot of things like detect like web scraping and it will do... Um, some very specific things, even if you request, like it will take all the emails on a page and rewrite them into something that looks crazy, uh, but can be decoded by a JavaScript they also inject into the page so that, uh, you know, blunt scraping of emails on, you know, pages doesn't happen. And it was in this HTML parsing to make those kind of features happen that they introduced a bug. What the bug was, was a buffer overflow that they said, like, oh, here's how much data we're looking at. And if the data is equal to the length of it, then we know we're done. And they didn't have a condition that said if it's more than the length of it. And so it was the situation where if site A and site B were both behind Cloudflare's uh, reverse proxy, and you requested something from site A, HTML on that page was weird and messed up a little that site B's information might come back because it just pulled more memory on the machine, on the Cloudflare proxy, and you got a chunk of that memory. And so hopefully, maybe, didn't affect that many sites. Uh, I think that's still to be determined. It's incredibly terrifying because basically all the sites that were using Cloudflare for this type of proxying are potentially affected. And so for a six-month period, there's a chance that any data that went through your website every time you posted uh, your username and password, every time you downloaded something, every time a real common thing that people bring up is that you called for an Uber, their endpoint for their Android app was going through this. And so those tokens, those API keys, all of that information is potentially exposed. Due to HTTP and how it works at all sorts of levels, it's cached everywhere. So all these machines all over the world are caching all this information and potentially have private information 
if I were to do like an enterprise security score on this, on a scale of one to 10, if all every time I entered my username and password, and it can potentially been exfiltrated on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the worst, what's the risk and, and problem level? Well, for yes, it's a it would be a 10. So you should, <laughs> you should, you, you know, you should change your password. And I think that, you know, we we're talking about like, what type of breach notification should Cloudflare do here? And, and that's something that's come up a lot. They've, They've been criticized and praised simultaneously for criticized for they are not apparently going out and telling each of their customers that this has happened, but they're being praised for being open about it in terms of they did publish a blog post that said in gruesome detail exactly how and why it occurred. They're still concerned that it's downplaying how big a problem this is or potentially how big a problem it is. Okay, so ooh, now I want to just every time I present a prompt, you guys should tell me how big of a problem you think it is on a scale of one to 10. So another problem uh, that Department U.S. Department of Homeland Security employees in the Washington and Philadelphia area, they were unable to access some of their uh, computer networks due to expired DHS certificate. I'm not sure what specifically the certificate that was expired uh, was because it wasn't revealed. What do you what do you think likely happened? Because some people were able to log on via the VPN. And, you know, this is the government we're talking about and they need to be able to do their job. I think that what they were using is a mixture of, you know, like we talk a lot about SSL on websites like even Cloudflare. That's a lot of what they do is provide SSL termination to these sites. And you can use, you know, public key infrastructure for the same way. Present a certificate to log into a certain system, a client certificate. It works. The underpinnings of it are the same as, you know, SSL on a website. Uh, these certificates expire. How they fit together is very complicated. The user experience of administering it is a nightmare typically, uh, and it's not intuitive. And I think due to the nature of how this was set up in their organization, um, it becomes a big issue, but it's not, it's nothing that I don't think, you know, every other website on earth has faced when they forgot to renew their SSL cert and the people couldn't get into their website. Yeah. I thought this was, um, a pretty interesting article just to kind of show that as Mike said, this is a challenge that faces everybody. You know, they were doing the right thing. They were trying to secure their connections using, again, good, good, strong encryption with the certificates, um, or at least facilitating that. But, a. uh, kind of a, a simple oversight. I, I think they said is basically we had the long weekend. The cert happened to expire on, on the President's Day holiday and they had off. So it, it resulted in a little bit of downtime. Uh, I thought it was just kind of reassuring is not the right word. But for an industry, for a security practice and for IT organizations, it's a real challenge. Even if you're doing the right things, I think that security is, is difficult um, and it always requires a mindful eye. So I don't think anything bad happened uh, specifically. It caused some downtime and they kind of denial of service themselves. But it's, it's a real challenge. Uh, again, we implement security and we have to maintain security. It's not kind of a you know, turnkey solution. We can't just plug in and say we're good now. Killian on a scale of 1 to 10 with 10 being the worst. I, I, uh, I would say it's a, you know, it's a solid 1 or a 2. I mean, they couldn't do their job, but it didn't disclose any information. It didn't cause harm, to use you know, Mike's kind of uh, mantra. It was annoying. It was a pain in the butt. They couldn't do their job, but I don't think anything bad specifically happened. 
So if this security breach was on Tinder, would you swipe left <laughs> or right on it? You're like, it's a good looking security breach. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just not in the market for that kind of data. So. God, that's too funny. We're running out of time. I wanted to talk about how there was malware used to capture a whole bunch of audio recordings of conversations and passwords. And I, I just, all I wanted to say was, I feel sorry for whoever steal audio recordings of stuff and has to go through the recordings and spend their life listening to it. And I like how the article referred to them as human analysts. That's, I mean, that's kind of funny. It is kind of scary, but just think this malware was specifically going out to record all that audio. But we, we often do this to ourselves a lot of the time with our always on voice assistants uh, that we like to put in our houses anymore. It's, this is just a malicious application of that. But, but Cindy, you're right. I mean, producing the, the podcast, you get to listen to us yap not only on the show, but like six times afterwards as you assemble it. So, I mean, I guess they are putting the work in to get this data. It doesn't, you know, make it a good thing, but... It's too, it's too much work. I'd rather use another method. <laughs> you... <laughs> so this is a cry for help. Cindy's like, if I could get the audio plugged, and so then someone else could listen to this podcast and put it together and like just send me a file at the end of the week. That'd be podcast great. ransomware. Like which of these which of these toys are going to steal all my audio? <laughs> so, Mike, do you have a tool of the week to share with everyone? Yes, um, it's from uh, we're talking about like cool stuff. It's from Netflix. Um, we don't normally think of Netflix as like a huge technology company, but we should. And they have previously released some really cool, interesting admin tools and some different stuff. Uh, but this is the first uh, security tool that I'm aware of that they've released, and it's called Stethoscope. If you go to techblog.netflix.com, it's the most recent thing that they have published. Um, but it's really interesting, and I thought it'd be something that fit with a lot of the things we talk about, in that what it's for is for communicating with users to confirm that they've taken actions. And so this is uh, an enterprise application that's sort of the equivalent of, hey, we just had someone try to log into your account from, you know, Tunisia. Was that you? And if you and you say, yes, it was me or no, it wasn't me. Then you proceed with things. So it's a way of automating these kind of actions and, you know, getting the user's input and trying to work through with them. And so they have this, you know, broken out. So it's even something that can work across various channels. So you can imagine like this going into Slack or it's an email or a different system. Um, so very, very interesting and uh, sort of a neat application that you can check out. You can download it and, you know, set it up yourself right now if you want. Great. I'm going to do that right after our podcast ends. <laughs> You've sold it to me. So thanks, Mike, Killian, Forrest, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at InfoSec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. I, I just wanted to say I'm really disappointed that Netflix doesn't have at the bottom of their post, like, if you like this security tool, you'll enjoy these other security tools as well. See you guys. Right. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>